Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Camleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. We are back with another story from our travels around Scotland this summer. Back in early 2020, I started planning a trip to an island that had been on my radar for a long time. The Isle of Canna, one of the small isles just south of Skye. But of course we all know what happened next. I never made it to Canna that year. It took me two full years before I felt confident enough to go back to the drawing board and revisit my plans. By now, the ferry schedule had changed and I couldn't fit in multiple islands in one trip, as I had initially planned. But there was something about Canna that convinced me that it would be worth making the long journey north just to visit that one island. And luckily, I was absolutely right. The Isle of Canna is a fascinating place. It's home to a very small and tight-knitted community and is essentially run as a farm and a nature reserve. The island is owned by the National Trust for Scotland, but much of the day-to-day running of the island is in the capable hands of the Isle of Canna Community Development Trust. You'll hear a little more about that when I speak to one of the locals, Ishbel McKinnon, next week. During my four days on the island, I saw a lot but by far not everything Canna has to offer. I learned about its previous owners at Canna House, met the National Trust Ranger to hear about corn creeks and hedgehogs, went for a wild swim at a beautiful sandy beach and ate some amazing locally sourced food. But Canna is also an excellent place to dive into the traditions of Gaelic language and songs, think about historic and current issues of land ownership in Scotland and simply get a taste of what it's like to live on an island today. Every local I met was so welcoming and open, happy to chat and share their stories. I could have probably produced an entire season just about Canna, 
But alas, I had to make a choice. And so in today's story, I focus on some of the natural wonders that await you on Cana. This is Of Stacks and Stones. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I was sitting outside the Cana Cafe, and for the first time since I had arrived on the island, the sun tickled my nose. It was about 3pm, and I had just returned from a hike up Compass Hill, a peak that rises sharply behind the village bay on the eastern end of Cana. Its rocky top is said to be magnetic enough to shift the ship's compass, hence the name. I hadn't really planned to walk all the way to the top. It just kind of happened. Clouds were hanging low over the island ever since my arrival. But there was really nothing else to do, so I started walking. It wasn't raining, but visibility was poor. Carefully, I followed a little trail along the edge of the cliff until it looped around the back of the hill and emerged near the top. I could barely see farther than five metres ahead of me, never mind the ocean or the village below. Instead, I paid attention to what I could see. A carpet of wildflowers extended as far as the eye could see. Among them, hundreds and thousands of delicate wild orchids. Tiny white petals with vibrant pink patterns. I had never seen so many of them before. Or maybe I just hadn't noticed. I returned to the village and walked past the black beach, a dark sandy bay with the towering ruins of Coroan Castle. Hungry from my walk, I ordered a slice of cake from the cafe and asked if I could return for dinner. But unfortunately, the staff had bad news. They were fully booked for the night. A little deflated, I sat down outside to rest my legs before returning to the campsite. And while I sat there, Looking out onto the bay, the clouds started to lift and the sun came out. It was at that moment that I made my decision. I had to keep walking. I finish my drink, walk around the corner to the community shop and stock up on some snacks to sustain me on my walk. A few pieces of fruit, a chocolate bar and a can of cola. That should do. And so I start walking again, towards the golden glow of the sun. Cana is, in many ways, a unique place to visit. It's the farthest away of the small isles, about halfway between the mainland and the outer Hebrides. It can't be seen from the mainland, though, as it's tucked away behind the towering Cullen of rum. The ferry for Cana leaves from Malag. Only locals are allowed to bring cars across, so most people board as foot passengers 
or with their bikes. It's a peaceful island that feels far away from everything. The long journey to get here, the sparse population, the wide parts of the island that are today uninhabited and pathless. But of course, for the small community of islanders who live here, this couldn't be farther from reality. It's hard work living on this island, and simple at the same time. There's always work to be done, and everyone is getting involved. The never-ending stream of visitors brings hustle and bustle to the village. Peace and quiet, yes, you can find that on Cana if you want. But it's just as easy to let the life and noise of the island swallow you up. It's a busy wee place if you allow yourself to see it. There are sailboats moored in the harbour. A ferry arrived earlier today, delivering guests to the island's guest house and campsites. Someone is cutting the grass around the church near the pier. And the generator at the farm has kicked in to produce electricity for the island. A backup on still days when the windmills on neighbouring Sandy stop turning. Just this morning, I woke up to a loud concert of sheep expressing their separation anxiety as the herd was divided into adults and youngsters. Peace and quiet? Not so much. But right now, I'm walking away from the noise, past the cafe and the sailboats, the farm and the generator, the sheep and the grass cutter, and towards the island at the end of the road. Sandy is a tidal island, connected to Cana by a silty strand twice a day, and since the late 19th century, also by a bridge. I now walk across it, no longer tied to the tides. The water below is shallow and clear, I can see the sun reflecting in the ripples on the surface, and the seaweed dancing below. On the other side, I turn left and follow a track that traces the bay just below the tide line. I walk past houses and caravans, fields with sheep and cows, and gardens filled with flowers. From what I can tell, the majority of the tiny population of Cana seems to live here on Sandy. At the end of the bay, the track swings inland and leads me towards a large stone church. I had first spotted it from the ferry a few days ago and have seen it every day since from across the village bay. St Edward's Chapel was built in 1890 and is the largest of the three churches on Cana. The contrast between the dark and light stones makes it stand out from the landscape and a beautiful rose window adorns the western gable end. The road ends here and I continue my walk on grassy paths. Soon, I spot the first way marker, assuring me that I'm on the right track. Dodging boggy ground and crossing puddles on rocky stones, I eventually reach a little hill. The path swings round its lower flanks, and suddenly, and without a warning, it emerges at the top of a gaping cliff sheltering a pebbly bay. There is a stack out in the water, reaching tall into the sky, about half the height of the sturdy cliff beside it. I spot another way marker and follow its direction up the side of the cliff. And while I didn't think the view could get any better than the bay with the sea stack, 
I stand corrected as I reach the edge of the cliff, the edge of Sandy, where the green grass gives way to breathtaking views of the blue sea and the Isle of Rum glowing in the distance. It is here that I'm trying to find what I came to Cana for. Even here on top of the cliff, the signs of erosion are obvious. The roaring sea and salty storms chip away at the thick layer of soil, exposing the soft reddish earth, and with it a system of tunnels dug by seasonal visitors to this island. But to my surprise, they all seem deserted. Patiently, I stand on the edge, offering shelter from large birds that might attack my little friends. It's worked before, but today... Nobody seems to care. My friends are keeping their distance. I had heard before my trip that the puffins of Sandy are behaving oddly this year. They're staying away from the cliffs on the main island, preferring the isolation of sea stacks off the coast. But to think that I had come all the way and not see any puffins at all, I wasn't ready to accept that. I sit down, take a bite from my chocolate bar and stare into the distance. And that's when I notice them. How did I not see them earlier? There are hundreds of tiny black dots in the sky, seemingly hovering an inch or so above a giant sea stack off the coast. There are hundreds more on the grassy slope of the stack, facing away from me. I get up and walk a little further along the edge to change my point of view. I can now see the slope more clearly. The puffins are well camouflaged, was it not for their glaring white chests, reflecting the sunlight back at me. I see individuals sitting on the grass, while others are up in the air, flapping their short, stocky wings frantically to control their landing. All of a sudden, a ripple of movement wanders through the colony, and a huge number of them leap off the edge. Like a cloud, they move towards me, flying in perfect formation. Just before they reach my cliff, the direction changes and they move away towards Rum. Then, they change direction again, flying back towards me and back to their stack. They do this over and over again. A figure-eight murmuration in the sky, performed just for me. Every now and then, a few puffins peel off and dive into the sea. As they join the group in flight, I can see the silver scales of fish sparkling in their beaks. I'm now much farther away from the stack, but with every figure eight, the puffins fly closer and closer until they're almost above my head. I can see them clearly, their wings spread mid-air, but none of them are bold enough to land anywhere near me. Instead, I spot a few of them, sitting on the cliff where I'd sat just a few minutes ago, eyeing me up, assessing the threat. In the distance, clouds are rolling over the back of Rum, slowly retreating and revealing its dramatic coastline. After a while, I decide to move on, feeling the hole in my stomach grow bigger. 
By now, I've eaten all my snacks I brought with me, and from the position of the sun, I can tell it's getting late. I follow the cliff edge for a little while longer. The puffins still fly in formation, although more of them have now settled on the stack. In a final effort to get a better view of the cliffs, I move a little higher and closer to the edge. I can hear the thundering sounds of nesting seabirds on a rock below, gulls or guillemots, and waves crashing against the rocks. And then I spot it. A single puffin sitting on a cushion of green grass just a few metres ahead of me. I get down on my knees, lay on my belly, and commando crawl my way forwards. This is the closest I've come to a puffin all day. I wasn't going to scare it off. Hiding behind a curtain of pink sea thrift, I take out my phone and start recording. Puffin is unimpressed. I can tell that it has spotted me, even eyes me up with a sliver of curiosity. But it doesn't seem to be too worried about my presence. It just sits there and rests. A few others join it, but whenever I move my arm or my head too much, they take off, leaping off the cliff. Only my wee pal sticks around, still unimpressed, or maybe the exact opposite, so mesmerised by the view of the coast that it has to stay in one place. But maybe that's just me. I stay here for a while, lying flat on the ground on the edge of a cliff, watching puffins gaze towards the sea. I can see islands far away on the horizon, maybe Husker and Col. More and more puffins arrive as I lay still, barely moving to breathe. Until my stomach makes another noise. I look at the time. It's been almost two hours since I arrived at the first stack, and it would take me at least another hour to walk back to the campsite. My stomach growls again, demanding a meal after hours of walking, first up Compass Hill and then out to the puffins. Reluctantly, I comply, rip myself away from my puffin friends and get back on my feet. The sun is still standing high as I make my way back across boggy fields, past the chapel, houses and cows, across the wee bridge back to Canna. The tide has withdrawn, leaving piles of seaweed in the silty channel between the islands. I reach the campsite as the sun begins to set and start making my dinner. The soft breeze keeps the midges at bay, allowing me to eat by the open door, watching as rum glows in the evening sun. I hadn't planned to do two hikes in one day, but when the opportunity for adventure presents itself, you may only get a moment to take it.
I hope you enjoyed this story about the Isle of Canna and my hike to the puffin stack on neighbouring Sandy. It was really hard to choose which part of my trip to focus on in this story, but in the end, the puffins were what enticed me to visit this island in the first place. So I had to tell their story. In this week's newsletter, I'll share some more stories from a trip to Canna and some resources for you to learn more about the island. You can sign up via the link in the show notes. Now let's take a quick detour and hear a story about our sponsors. Hello, Wild for Scotland listeners. My name is Fran Tarowskis and you know me as the co-producer of Wild for Scotland. But I'm here to tell you about another podcast in the Tremula network. On the Outside is for anyone that spends their time outdoors in the UK and wants to engage in the wider outdoor community. Each episode, you'll hear a diverse range of enthusiasts and experts talking about the news stories that matter to them. We look at everything from specific sports news to the social issues and events that shape the way we experience the outdoors. In previous episodes, we've talked about southern water dumping sewage into our seas, a racist stunt on Ben Nevis, and whether climbing gyms should ban topless climbing. So if you want to hear conversations and opinions on what's happening outside, search for On The Outside in your podcast app or head to ontheoutsidepodcast.co.uk. And we're back. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are five travel tips for a trip to the Isle of Canna. Tip number one, take your time. I know I'm probably repeating myself, but I think it's really important to emphasise that islands like the Isle of Canna really require you to take your time. Yes, you can theoretically do a day trip to the island, at least if the ferries play along, but you wouldn't actually get a sense for it. I spent three nights on Canna and wish I had stayed longer to see more of the island and meet more of its people. It's a great wee place to slow down and explore at your own pace. Tip number two, stay at Canna campsite. There are a couple of accommodation options on the island. There's a guest house which was just taken over and redone beautifully by a lovely lady from Glasgow. There are a few self-catering cottages and caravans. And then there's the campsite. Now, you may not want to sleep in a tent, and that's absolutely fine. Neither did I. Instead, I booked one of the glamping pods at the campsite. That way, I had a roof over my head for those inevitable rainy days, but it also encouraged me to spend as much time as possible outside. The campsite has a cooking shed and a modern toilet and shower block with cold water. Ishbel, who runs the campsite, delivers breakfast baskets full of local produce to your door, And each pot also has a fire pit and a picnic bench. It was the perfect home base for my stay. And honestly, one of the best views I've ever had in Scotland. Tip number three. Book a table at Canna Cafe. This one is important if you don't want to repeat my mistake. Not that I didn't love my spontaneous walk to the Puffins, but I really hadn't expected Canna Cafe to be fully booked that evening. Since Canna is a popular mooring spot for sailing yachts, there can actually be a lot more people on the island than you might expect coming off the ferry. Canna Cafe is the only restaurant on the island, and it's a popular place. So I do recommend you head there first thing to make reservations for your time on the island. 
They also take bookings via email if you're super keen. Their menu is a great mix of Scottish classics, seafood from the bay, and even some vegan options. Tip number four, make time to chat with the locals. Like me, you may have heard about Canna in the context of its natural beauty. The puffins, the sea stacks, the corn crake. But really, it's the people who make this island so special. Some of them have lived on Canna for generations. Others are fairly recent arrivals who've taken on the island way of life. Like I said in the intro to this episode, I met a lot of people on Canna, and it was so nice to hear their stories. I think it's really important to engage with the people who call the places we visit their home, and get a kind of reality check. Canna does feel super remote for someone like me, maybe even wild. But really, there's a lot more to it when you start digging deeper, and just listen. I encourage you to do the same. Tip number five. Pack some seasickness meds. No, really, the Isle of Canna is pretty far out, and while the journey to rum or egg is relatively sheltered, the ferry can hit some pretty rough water on its way to and from Canna. On the day I returned to the mainland, the big ferry was actually called away, so I had to go back on a much smaller boat. It was a beautiful sunny day, but the wind was blowing strong and the swell was massive. I held on to that boat so tightly, I thought I could never let go. It was the worst ferry trip of my life, and even though it lasted only an hour, I felt motion sick all evening. I definitely wish I had brought some meds or remedies with me. I won't make that mistake again. And yet, if all of this has inspired you to plan a trip to the Isle of Cana, head to my Scotland travel blog, watchmesee.com, and find my detailed Cana travel guide for lots of tips and inspiration. I promise it's worth the seasickness. And with this, I send you off to plan your own trip to the Isle of Canna. Whether you follow in my footsteps to seek out the puffins, want to learn about the unique archive of Gaelic songs at Canna House, or simply come here to rest. Next week, we're talking to Ishbel McKinnon, whose family has called Canna their home for many generations. She runs the campsite and is a director of the Community Development Trust. Together, we dive into what makes Canna so special, her favourite things to do and experience here, and what the future holds for the island community. I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. As always, we really appreciate your feedback, so if you enjoyed this story, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts today, and share the link with a friend. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kahnleitner. Thanks to Fran Tarowskis, who's the co-producer and editor and does the sound design. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.